James chapter 5, an important, difficult text. If you were going to give me 15 minutes, we'd only be five minutes late, and you're thinking you've never heard a 15-minute sermon from me. I haven't either. Uh, you know, there's first time for everything, right? And so we're going to, listen, we're going we're gonna to do what we can to hear from God this morning. So James chapter 5, we've only got to read six verses. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud or crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not even resist you. Friends, these are difficult words, and you may be in one of two camps as you sit here listening and reading this this morning. You may be uh, in the position of being in your own eyes even, and in the eyes of our culture around us, uh, materially and significantly blessed, uh, and, and thinking, man, this is... I need some help understanding this and what, what's he saying and uh, just some concern about what the words uh, of this passage have to say to you. And, and, and I would encourage you that that's a good concern to have. Uh, we need to think carefully about these words. But you may also be in the camp of, at least from your own perspective or from that of our culture around us, of thinking, man, I'm glad these rich people are finally going to get a talking to this morning. And uh, let, me, let me simply caution you. Uh, let me simply caution you about a couple of things as you maybe approach this text with the thought that, you know, I'm not the rich that are being spoken of here in this text. Uh, relative to the group of people to whom this letter was written, we're all filthy rich. And I've said this many times that we are the richest country in the world and the most wealthy people in the world in all times in history. We are certainly the most wealthy Christians that have ever graced the face of the earth. And friends, if you have been here this morning and you have been and if you watched for just a second the video that you just did if nothing else struck you you should have been struck by the great material blessings that you enjoy and so i think relative to all of these things you need to be careful to understand that the rich that are being spoken of in this passage are you they are all of us and secondly let me caution you that the riches that are being spoken of whatever amount of wealth we have whatever amount of material blessing we enjoy, they are not the problem in this text. The rich are not condemned because they are rich. For if James's point was to condemn the rich on account of the riches, on account of the wealth that they enjoy, he would be contradicting Scripture on the one hand. For there are plenty of instances of the Bible where God's people, as a matter of his kindness and favor and blessing, are bestowed with immeasurable material blessing. And even those who are not immeasurably blessed there are plenty of instances where to a lesser or greater extent even relative to their own context god favored and blessed his people with material blessing and they are not condemned for that blessing not only would he be standing in contradiction to much of the testimony of the rest of the bible if james's point was that riches intrinsically were sinful he would be creating a division among the believers to whom he wrote friends it's a letter to believers and if he was to single out a certain subset of those believers who, based on the very presence of their wealth or lack thereof or abundance of their wealth, that they were somehow 
less righteous or less pious or less holy, then he would be creating a class uh, war, if you will, where there would be bitterness and struggle between those who are not of the same wealth category. And notice he never tells us what that line is. He just calls them the rich and causing them to look with bitterness or with arrogance or with pride or with satisfaction that the judgment of God was coming upon them uh, and, and, and even maybe to wrongly see and understand, well, what have you done? You know, what, you think you're so righteous and you've been blessed with all this, but look, James is telling you that because of your riches, you, you, are, uh, you are reaping judgment upon yourself and heaping it upon your head. Do you, see, do you see how problematic this would be? And it's simply not the case. And so for time purposes, I'm just going to leave it at that. Let us understand very carefully, friends, as we consider this text, that the wealth, whatever amount we have of it, A, we are the rich, and B, the problem is not in our riches. Friends, the problem is in our heart and in the way that we view our riches. James has been arguing for chapters for an entire letter about the essential characteristics of true Christianity and giving us a a measuring stick, if you will, of these things in our life that we can look at as matters of obedience to God's word and faithfulness to his son Christ, our Savior, and the things that he has commanded us to do and to refrain from. We can look at the life that we live and certain areas and aspects of our life, and we can know for certain whether or not our faith is genuine whether or not we really do know him, whether or not we really do love him, whether or not we have drawn near to him and submitted to him, which is the language that he uses in chapter 4. And friends, I would simply encourage you that that is the testimony of James in these verses. That if you want to know the genuineness of your faith, if you want to know how hot you burn for Christ, one of the easiest places to look and to gauge that temperature is to look at your finances. Friends, you can tell a lot about somebody when you look at their money. Not how much of it they have, but how much of it they give what it means to them, what it says about their heart. Contextually also, as a matter of good exegesis, I think it's helpful to understand that this this understanding of these verses fits in much better with what James has been arguing. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 4 and verses 1 through 8, James declares in verses 4 and 5 that the, the people, the believers to whom he's writing, you're an adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And then he says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So he's arguing that our worldliness is evidenced by a self-centered, self-serving, self-trusting lifestyle. I mean, if you look back at verses 1 through 3, he talks about that we desire and do not have, so we murder we covet and cannot obtain, so we fight and quarrel. See, the, desire, the self-serving, inward-looking selfishness that is characterized by those who are friend, friends of the world. So, so it's, it's the, the characteristics of worldliness over against the characteristics of true Christianity and godliness, which is not a self-serving, but a God-serving, which is not a self-exalting, but a God-exalting perspective and worldview. He says you, you, you have... You, you want and you cannot obtain, you, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't get because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Even alluding to the idea there that whatever he's talking about, not only material blessing, but certainly including that, that, it, that we would have. God would bless if we weren't going to abuse it and misuse it. Do you see that the possession of, of these matters is not the problem. The riches in and of themselves is not the problem. And so he's begin to 
talk about um, that that worldliness and friendship with the world, which puts us at enmity with God, that it is evidenced by self-centered and self-serving and self-trusting lifestyle. And then he begins to give us these specific areas where the expressions of our either godliness or our worldliness is evident, isn't it? The first area he gave us is in the area of repentance, where true Christians are characterized by an attitude of sincere repentance and brokenness over sin rather than a self-exalting trust and love for sin and an arrogant unwillingness to repent. The second area that he gave us in these verses that have preceded is in our dealings with one another. Do you remember? Where he tells us that true Christianity is characterized by a humility that deals out of deep kindness and grace for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Where we are not self-serving and self-exalting by putting others down but where we seek to lift them up to deal out of kindness with them and to bestow grace upon them. The third area that this dichotomy, this expression can be seen is in our confidence, where we can either trust in ourselves with an inward-looking hope and in our abilities and our plans, or we can take utter confidence and satisfaction and joy in God's plans and in His abilities and in His providence and provision in our lives. And that brings us then to chapter 5, verse 1, where he gives us the fourth area. So you see that just as with repentance and kind dealings with one another and confidence in God and not in ourselves, so too riches and our perspective on them and the way we deal with them, it can point to either the genuineness of our faith and profession to believe in Christ, or it can be evidence to our hearts and to the world around us that we really love ourselves and serve ourselves and have this self-serving, self-exalting worldliness. We can be characterized by one or the other when it comes to our finances, and so it is the same way. The three things that he says, you notice he he declares to the rich, look at what he says, verse 1. I'm actually doing pretty good. We're like halfway through. Verse 1, check it out. He says, come now, you rich. So here they are, the rich. I've I've argued that it's you. You can ask me about that later. It's all of us. He doesn't tell where the line of, of, of wealth is. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So there's a problem with these rich, and judgment is coming upon them. This is language of the last judgment. The weeping and howling, this is even Old Testament language of the day of judgment that's coming upon sinners. That is the day of the return of Christ. And much like the rest of the scriptures that God has given us, that James would have known very well, those that would have been he would have had access to, and, and much like Christ, whom he would have known well, he's arguing that we are to live in light of the coming judgment. Whether it's in terms of our kindness with one another, our dealings with one another, our repentance before God, our expression of the gospel to the nations, or the way we spend our money and orchestrate and administrate our finances and our family, we are to do so in light of the coming judgment. Friends, that's a significant reality. To think that we will give an account for the way we've spent our money and stewarded the blessings that God has given us. And that's his call. That these rich, there is a problem. (laughs) There is a problem. Because in the last judgment that is coming, they are to weep and howl because misery is coming upon them. The question for us then is why? Why are the rich to whom he's speaking being condemned? It's not for their richness. So what is it for? What is the problem with the rich? Well, there are three areas where they have abused the wealth and the riches that God has given them. First of all, look at verses 2 and 3 and then even the beginning of 5. They have held their wealth sinfully. 
They have held it sinfully. Verse 2 and 3, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Material blessing. And then look at the beginning of verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and here it is, self-indulgence. What's the problem? It's not that they have so much. It's that they hoard so much. That they live in luxury and self-indulgence. Notice the language. So much so, they can't get enough of it. And they're hoarding it all for themselves and storing it up in the last days in their storehouses. All for their own personal benefit and use with this self-serving perspective on their finances. That they cannot even use all that they hoard. Can they? Verses 2 and 3. The riches have rotted. The garments are still with tags on them hanging in their closet with holes. With holes because they've not been used. They've not been worn. They they have held so much out for themselves that they cannot even use all that they have. And the interesting thing, notice that if this is in light of the last judgment, he means that at the end of time, there still would not have been time for them to use all that they had hoarded. It's unbelievable, isn't it? That they've lived, as it says, in luxury and self-indulgence. They have stored it up selfishly, looking inwardly. Friends, it's an expression of worldliness, an unwillingness to let our money go, selfishness. Friends, and it's sin because it exposes a few things. Look, it tells where your heart is. What did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, that's the language James uses, there your heart is also. And friends, when we hoard our money and are unwilling to let it go, it shows where our heart really is. It shows where our trust is. Why? Because it says we cannot trust God to provide for our needs. We feel a sense to provide for ourselves, a sense of responsibility so that we hoard all these things lest we come up with nothing. It shows where our joy is because we cannot get enough of it. It may show that we have a genuine dissatisfaction in the amount that God has given us because we're always wanting more, feeling like we can never have enough hoarding it for ourselves. It definitely shows a heart that burns brightly for ourselves and our own desires, but that barely smolders for the needs and the concerns of others. Definitely. It shows at least a compromised allegiance. Friends, it shows potentially that we are enemies of God. But at least it shows that we have a compromised allegiance as sinners. The selfish affording of our wealth points to a heart that lives at least in part for ourselves. So they held on to it sinfully. Secondly, they acquired it sinfully. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they are testifying against you, crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You see what he's talking about? He's talking about a sinful acquisition of wealth. Where these landowners had all of these workers, these wealthy had all of these little peons in their eyes who did all of this work for them. And friends, they would not even pay them their fair wage. They would not even give them what was rightfully earned and owed to them. They have stepped on those below them in order to get up the ladder. They have defrauded their brother in order that they might have gain. They have cheated others out of what is rightfully theirs. And God, the great avenger of all, says that it will not go unnoticed. And this type of sinfulness and worldliness, it will not go unpunished. It shows again, even to a greater degree than the first 
which is how they held it, their acquiring of it and how they got it, it shows to a greater degree how dissatisfied they were with God's providence and provision of their lives. Think about this. If you're willing to go to these lengths to obtain money, it shows a genuine sense of self-entitlement. I must deserve these things that other people have so that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Who is God not to bless me with this? It shows a sense of insecurity where we're not willing to trust in God, are we? Friends, I mean, I'm not holding up on, up on a pedestal, but I mean, the Defazios are going to one of the poorest places in the world and taking two children, young children there. And, and they're coming to people like us and to churches like us who are, and asking for just a little something to support them. Friends, it, it, it is because I know them. It's at least in part because of their trust in God to provide for their needs. Friends, when, when we are willing to acquire money uh, selfishly and by sin, it shows a sense of self-reliance. If I don't have it, I want it. And if I think I deserve it and I want it, if God's not going to give it to me, then I'm going to find a way to get it. I don't even need his help. I can step on others. I can climb that ladder. I can make something of myself. Do you see that it's, a, it's ultimately a, a self-exalting and self-trusting expression of arrogant obstinance against God? I don't need you. I, I can have all I need and then some according to me and my ways. Friends, it'll end in sin where we are sinfully acquiring. It's very reminiscent, isn't it, of the pro- prodigal son? who sinfully and arrogantly demanded for his inheritance so that he could go and live how he wanted to live and how he thought he deserved to live and enjoy the lifestyle that he wanted to have. Friends, you know the story, and it did not end well for the prodigal son, who ultimately and thankfully came groveling in repentance because he was destitute and with nothing. So they have held it sinfully, they have acquired it sinfully, and fourthly, they are storing up for themselves and, should, and, and, and are called to weep and howl because of the miseries that are coming upon them in the judgment, the day of judgment that is to come, because they have used their money sinfully. Look at verses 5b and 6, the second part of verse 5. He talks about their living in luxury and self-indulgence. And then he says, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person and he does not even resist you. What wealth that they have, they have used it only to fatten up themselves. What wealth God has given them and blessed them with, they have only used for selfish ambition and personal gain. And it's not even gain that they could use. It's gain that was rotting in the closet and rotting in the storehouse. It has been used not only for self-fattening, but for self-preservation. Because their money gave them a sense of position in society. That position is what was been used to not pay other people. Have you ever wondered why they weren't ever brought to account for that and brought to justice? It's because by virtue of all that they had, they were the justice system. So it's in self-preservation. It's in self-exaltation. It's according to and for self-advancement that they use all that they have. The language here is that they murder Righteous people condemn them wrongly on account of money. Dr. Ligon Duncan about this, whom I love, his sermon about this is fantastic. I had not even thought of this. He points to, you know who I think James has in view here? Judas, who sold Jesus. And, and the righteous was murdered for money. I had not made that connection. But friends, it's a beauty, it's it's a... It's a staggering picture of, I think, what he's dealing with. They used 
their money and they sought more money and acquired it all by sin and oppression. It was by the abuse of power where we think that the wealth we have according to God's providence gives us the right to do unto others whatever we want and ultimately whatever benefits us. Friends, it's the exact opposite of what we saw when I preached through Mark 12 with the widow's might, isn't it? She came with nothing and she gave everything that she had. Why? To be used by God in the advancement of his kingdom. Friends, the best question in closing that I can sum, that I can sum this teaching on finances for you. If, you're gonna, if you claim to love Christ, if, if, if you're going to have a truly Christian perspective on finances and on the wealth, friends, thank God for his kindness and favor to us. He's blessed our church tremendously. And we now stand this morning, even now, with a wonderful opportunity to sacrificially give to the work of the kingdom around the world. The opportunities that he presents us with, friends, my simple question to you is, does your claim to follow Christ cost you anything? For in order that you would follow him, it cost Christ himself everything. The richest, the king of kings, the God of glory, made himself of no reputation, completely humiliated as a sinful man. He was not a sinner, but he bore the sins of sinful men, bearing our sin on the cross, making himself nothing, setting all of his riches aside on account of you. And friends, the question is, when we look at our finances, and it's not just our finances, our time and our families, the way we steward our lives. Friends, does our love of Christ and our obedience to him, does it cost us one thing? Friends, I've, we've taught on stewardship a few times, especially as we went through the life of Christ. And ultimately, what I said is that we must give out of the abundance that God has given us. We have this divine uh, responsibility to help the helpless. I preached Psalm 82, if you remember that. To, to meet the needs of the broken and the helpless around the world, to, to give out of our abundance to those who do not have an abundance, to give intentionally, proportionately to what God has given us, and ultimately sacrificially so that it must cost us something. Friends, if God has blessed you unbelievably, praise God for that. I pray that you're using what he's given you for the advancement of his kingdom. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for... Uh, the morning that we've had in worship. Thank you for the testimonies of those who are setting aside wealth and prosperity in this country to go and take the gospel to those who are hurting and in need in another. God, for those of us who are here who are struck by these words, these very strong words in this text this morning, God, help us to deal generously with others. God, help us to be obedient to the scriptures, to give sacrificially. God, may we not hold on sinfully to our money. May we not seek to get it by sinful means. And Father, may we not use it to sinful ends. May we trust you to give us what we ought to have, what we need. May we thank you for the abundance that you give us, and may we show that gratitude and thanks by our humble obedience to give sacrificially to others. Father, we pray that you would break our hearts for the lost, for the broken, for the nations, for the destitute, even those around us in the immediate God, make us gracious and generous people where we recognize, as James is teaching here this morning, that true Christianity is characterized by self-denying, God-exalting use of money. God, may our people at Redeemer be characterized by that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.